We're continuing where we left off. Um, it is uh, April 26, 2020, and we're continuing our worship service with the thought of the week and prayer. All right, and here is the thought of the week. What God has called us to be is new. This new will certainly not look like the old. The church is not Jewish in nature. There are many passages which demonstrate we are not under the law. We do not follow Jewish customs or tradition, even though we may, even though they may be found in the word of God. Many have ignored this distinction and insist upon putting a Jewish joke around the church's neck. We find this subject to be a good deal of the source of Paul's persecution and suffering. We can find this struggle in passages, in the pages of scripture. Many, I'm sorry, God made a change in the administration and he needs it to be understood. Otherwise, God's purposes cannot be fulfilled for the church. Many who are from a Gentile background have not understood what new God has made of the church. In their view, not much is delineated regarding the church as far as our modus operandi. Therefore, looking back to the Mosaic law seems to be the new morality. At the time of writing, Gentiles were morally bankrupt. Even their religious systems and temples were filled with the most vile immorality and decadence. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more, taken from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 19. Gentiles had to move away from those extreme immoral lifestyles if they, if they would see God's purpose for them in the church. Even though we can make the case that the church is not Jewish in nature, Many overlook the fact that it is not Gentile either. Both Jew and Gentile must discard their former way of thinking and with humility hear from God as to what is the church. It was for this reason God sent the Apostle Paul. And that is the thought of the week. And now let me just add a quick commentary to that. And that is... We see from the Gentile um, background that they were giving themselves over to every sensuality and to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Even they were not disqualified from salvation. Salvation was not dependent on their moral behavior, on their immoral behavior becoming moral. That is something that helps to fulfill the purpose of the church. But to be saved and enter into the church to begin with, there are no qualifications. For God has met all of the requirements. We must trust in him in order to be one in Christ. And that is my commentary. And now for the prayer we'll have Bill. Thank you, Dwight. So at this time, if anyone stands in the need of prayer or knows someone, this is the time that we bring that forward. Uh, the Marshall family, they lost uh, Mrs. Marshall last week. So asking for prayer for them. Mar okay. The Marshall family, Mike is married to Deb Marshall. And so it's her mother. Okay. All right, there's none others. We can bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we come before your Father, asking that you hear us, O Lord. For surely we all stand in the need of your gracious help, O Lord. We want to pray, O Father, first for the Marshall family, O Lord. We pray for the bereaved, and not just for the Marshall family, but all those that have lost a loved one in this pandemic situation that is going on presently in our lives. Dear Lord, we want to pray that you bring comfort to those who are still alive and bring healing to those who may be sick from this pandemic. Dear Lord, we want to pray for Word is Truth Church, O Lord, that we may come unitely together, that we may build coalition 
around you, O oh Lord. One that might, that on seers, see something unique in the way we deliver your word, O oh Lord. That they may come in bold honor and trusting you and knowing that there is none other than you, O oh Lord, that can bring them to the place where they come to know the truth about your word, about your son, and the purpose of our lives. Father God, we also want to pray for the children, O oh Lord, those who are coming up and seeing the destruction all around them, what's going on in their lives. We pray for their future, O oh Father, that they may have strength and learn to trust in you. It's in Jesus' name that we ask this in all prayers. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bill, and thank you, Dwight. We are going to continue where we left off last week. You have notes, and um, in your notes, we're looking at John 14, 19. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. Stand by. Resuming. So, uh, you have notes, and what we have here is uh, in your notes. If we pay close attention, we will hear these, quote, very great and precious promises the Apostle Peter spoke about in Second Peter 1.4. We should be leaning forward to see what God has in store for us from eternity past. With our Lord's physical departure, he promises his distraught disciples they will see him again soon. I'm imagining the furrowed brows and straining looks they must have had on their faces. They had no context in which to put this unprecedented information. Their only option was to believe the Lord. He hadn't let them down before, and he certainly demonstrated that God was with him. They were quickly learning that their lives were dependent on Jesus. So we covered a lot of this. Uh, the first, second point points here. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. And we talked about the point that he's not talking about, um, you know, him dying, but but not only his death, but his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension to the Father. That's what he means by the world won't see him any longer. So he won't physically be on this earth. He won't set foot on this earth again until the second coming. That's in Zechariah 14.4. And uh, we saw, but you will see me, the second phrase uh, there. And we talked about that and how important it was for us to understand how that is in context. What, what does that mean? And... There was this one point in D where he says, I would have included the question. I say, I say, I would have included the question. How do you intend to show yourself? And uh, this is, Jesus is saying, I'm going to come back. I'm going to show myself to you. And we know what's coming in our context, which is verse 20. And where Jesus says, on that day, you will know, you will know. And then he goes into but that's all for next week. We're going to save some of that for next week. Um, they did not physically see Christ. When he says, you will see me, they will not physically see him. He's not going to appear physically to them. It's going to be a spiritual appearance. And we, we, we understand, and we're going to talk about the context of how that works. And even in some of this, he says, because I live, you also will live, is the third phrase that we want to look at, which we really didn't cover in the detail that we will. So let's go over it again until we get to where we left off. The how question is answered in the next phrase here. And our lives are merged with Christ's life. And we, we covered the body metaphor. Christ is the head, we're the body. And the body did not exist. The body was a mystery. And uh, just like Christ in the church, 
Right? We, we, we talked about the analogies that derive from what we saw with Adam. He, God put him to sleep and, and then took from a rib, built the woman and then presented her to him and so forth. And we use that as an analogy to understanding the mystery. Because I live, point B, Christ is referring to after his, disciple, his departure, but you will see me. That is, after he dies, is resurrected, ascends to the Father. Point C, here is the essence of the Christian life. It is Christ. Now, sometimes you get a phrase in the Bible that completely describes what the Christian way of life is. And the very principle of the Christian way of life is Christ. It's not a dead person that we're remembering that has no impact anymore in the world or on us. We're talking about a person who is still alive. He, he, he's living, right? Because he lives, and because we maintain that understanding of a risen Christ who is at the right hand of God in heavenly places, interceding for us. Because we have a living Lord, right, one who is alive, that's how we will also live. He will live through us as well. He's not only in heaven, but he is also in us. I will see you again. You will see me. I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. And that's if, we, if he were to leave us as orphans to fend for ourselves with only memories of him, that's one thing. But he says, I will come to you. You will see me. Right? These are, in the context, direct statements of promise that we in the church. So it's important that we look at this as foundational to the church. Right? This is unique. Um, when we think about who God is and who we are in relationship to him. So that how question that I talked about is answered for us, and we will get to the answer. Point B, because I live, Christ is referring to after his departure, but you will see me. Right? That is after he dies, resurrected. We already covered that. Point C, he is the essence of, of the Christian life. And we said it is Christ. That there is the very essence of how we exist as Christians. Now, whatever we, we call ourselves, right? it says in Acts they were first called Christians at Antioch. And people want to talk about what is a Christian and, oh, if, if you're a Christian, this is what expectations should be of you. Uh, Here's what expectations should really be of you as a Christian. Christ, he has to be in you. If Christ is in you, then you're a Christian. If you're in Christ and Christ is in you, this dynamic relationship we're getting ready to talk about, if that is going on, then you're a Christian. Well, what about, oh, the fact that you do this or you do that? You may have all sorts of views in your own head about what a Christian is. But your mind needs to be transformed into his image. We need to have the mind of Christ in order to function properly as Christians. But to be a Christian, this is the requirement. So, moving on. Point D. How can this be? I can ask the question. And that question is like what was asked uh, in verse 22, how is it that you're going to show yourself to us and not to the world, right? It's how is that going to be, right? And uh, we were going to look at Romans 6, 4 for that. <clears throat> and I think I turned there. We covered some of this last week, huh? so I remember. But I'm, I'm there again, but we're going to finish this thought. Romans 6, 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live the new life. That new life is what is most important here. That newness of life. 
God, it, he, he brought this, uh, this new life about through what happened, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Now, through the church age, he is able to come back to us. We're going to talk about how we, we can live the new life as a result of what happened at Pentecost. The disciples, it wasn't available to them yet. But us, on the other side of Pentecost, it's available. At the time of writing, they were puzzled, I'm sure. New life, never before seen, unprecedented life, I'm sure they had a lot of questions. But they would all be answered. How does it work? It works through the ministry of the baptism of the Spirit. Now, when we say baptism of the Spirit, it encompasses all those five things that the Holy Spirit did at Pentecost. I'll just go over them again. The baptism of the Spirit is one. The filling of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, the gifting of the Spirit, and the sealing ministry of the Spirit. And each of those five things are not the same thing. They're different. And I would hope in, in your growing in grace and in the knowledge, you are able to not only distinguish the difference between those things I mentioned, the differences, as well as what they add, how, they how are they distinguished in the body of Christ, and how, what, the, what assets do they bring us in the body of Christ. I've listened to some when they talk about the ministries of the Spirit, and they just all lump them together, and they, there's no distinction and among what assets they bring to the body of Christ. I think for us, we need to not only understand that those five distinctions exist, but how they function. Each one of them, you need, you need to be familiar with how they work, because it is the very basis of who you are. If you don't understand it, then it's all a mystery still. When the mystery has been revealed, then we're supposed to understand it. That is the whole goal, is that we will come to the knowledge of the truth about us. So it, it is important that we understand that. And But point E, we're moving into what happens if we don't have a proper understanding of the mystery age. What will happen? These verses, right, what we're talking about in John 14 will be marginalized. Right? They will not be understood. They'll be rationalized and marginalized. Rationalized, people will fill in the blanks. When they don't understand something, instead of them following what the scripture says, they'll fill in what they think it means. So then they'll marginalize it. Well, since they can't understand the the depth of the verse, the, the, the statements, right? The, on the surface of it, Jesus says, not only that, I'm coming back to you. On that day, you will realize, you will know. They said, well, I can't get with that. I can't understand how that's going to work. That never happened for me, so I'm going to marginalize that. It doesn't mean what it says. It just means this, right? So the, that's how the people will understand these things. We need to stop, take time, to mine the depths of what God is telling us. We need to be about our Father's business here. As we've said earlier, this may be one of those things where I want to preach about, but really, we need to be in control of the narrative for the church, not allow the whole world who is telling people what Christians ought to be. And No, we ought to be in the in the driver's seat here, telling the world what God's plan is and how uh, what he is doing right now in heaven. This is our response. We have the information. It is our responsibility to be heralds of this. And if we can't be directly on the speaking part of it, we need to be in the supportive part of it. Right? As just like the body supports everything. The whole body can't be one thing or the other. It has to be whatever the Holy Spirit desires. So, 
some key features to note, and we're going to talk about five of them, but just trust me, these five go in all different directions of understanding, right? They all have depth. I just put the surface part down. So the first one is the baptism of the Spirit. Not only what we leave, but how we are changed in Christ. Now this is part, now I'm going to go to Romans chapter 6, so if you want to turn your Bibles there. So when we talk about the baptism of the Spirit, and for years I talked about it as minus and plus. The minus is what we leave, the plus is what we gain through the baptism of the Spirit. And um, now I want to emphasize, what the emphasis has to be for us on what do we gain? What is this new life that it says in verse 4? That's the plus, that being united to the person of Christ, right? That being taken out of Adam uh, is the minus side, which we got to understand, right? What happened to us when we believed in Christ in this age? We need to understand all the ramifications of that. But then, not enough information or focus has been put on the plus side of this. And this is this first thought, the baptism of the Spirit. What, how are we changed in Christ? Right? That's where we're digging in to the differences of who we are and who Israel was. Right, who we are and the difference between Jews and Gentiles, period. We, we need to make that. It's up to us to define that, not anyone else. So Romans 6, 6 through, 6 through 11, talks about the mindset. And even the mindset of the minus talks about the plus in that. Right? One of the things we need to understand is what we are not. What we are not any longer tells us that we now have something new. So Romans 6, 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. That's a plus for us. Uh, we ought to see that as a plus, that the body of sin, even though that's all negative, what God took away from us, took us away from but now, what does that add to us? That we're no longer slaves to sin, right? And we now can be slaves to righteousness, right? This is all opportunity for us. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sins. Through the baptism of the Spirit, we were baptized into Christ, not when Christ was a Jew, not when he was a little boy going to the temple and watching him do animal sacrifices and obeying the law, but when he died. We were identified with him in his death. That's the point at which we are identified with the person of Christ. That's why when we're in Christ, we're not Jewish. right? In Christ, there is no Jew and no Gentile. Right? It is the plan of God here that God is talking about those who are in Christ. The church, the body of Christ. Right? It is not Jewish. It is not Gentile-ish. It is church. Well, we have to define what that means. And then he says, um, verse 8, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So here, <clears throat> we talked about that whole thing where he says, uh, Because I live, you also will live. Now here's the reasoning of it given through the Apostle Paul. Right? We died with Christ, we, and Christ died in order that he didn't just die just so he'd be dead. He died, was buried, so that he could be resurrected and ascend so that he could live. He could continue the Father's plan for the church. So, now listen. Here he says, uh, verse 8, Now, if we died, he's po postulating, if this is so, and this is logic with him, we believe that we will continue the process. We will live with him. Living with him is the part that we have right now. Right? This is, this is what, what it means to be identified with and, and to be in Christ as a new creation. Right? It talks about the resurrection life. 
the new life. The life that Christ is living in heaven is superimposed upon his body. What he's, what he's doing in heaven, what the life that he's living, is a part of who we are. That's the life we're supposed to be living. So when it says in Colossians, uh, if you are risen with Christ, it didn't say if you died with him. It says if, if, if then you are, have been raised with Christ, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Well, that is to say, if you are alive with Christ, then your life is based on his life. Because you have gone through the process of death, burial, and it follows resurrection. Same thing it says in verse 4, being illustrated in all these verses. He's, Paul makes a point. He makes a bold statement. Then he proves it. And, and the preceding, the uh, successive verses here. So this, this part is important here. The living part. Verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. How are we going to live with him? Just by following the principles that he had? No, we have to have our minds transformed into his mind. It is his image. When it says into his image, we already are united to him through the baptism of the Spirit. That's done. That can't be improved on. It's perfect. We are in Christ, no doubt. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. But now we're talking about living, how you live. And this part about living with him, meaning we have to identify, there has to be a rapport through our consciousness and his consciousness in heaven. That's the new life. It is not about this world. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hid with Christ in God. This is how we ought to function. Our minds ought to be transformed by that renewing process. Verse 9. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. So these are realities, boundaries that you can't cross. I mean, you couldn't cross these if you tried. If you said, well, you know, if you were crazy, like it says in verse 1, what should we say? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Impossible. Can't do it. And this is not the thinking. Right? We're talking about some legalistic Jewish person who is hearing the apostle and trying to poke holes in what he's saying when they don't understand what God has actually done at Pentecost. They reject that. And they think that Israel and Judaism is still under uh, holding sway. And then it is not. This is a whole new life here. This is what Paul is talking about. In verse 9, he says, Death no longer has mastery over us. In this new life, death is not a part of that. There is no condemnation. And the, the, the death that was in Adam, the spiritual death, can't rule over us like it ruled over uh, all those people who were in Adam. Death reigned over them. It does not reign over us. So, verse 10, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. This is our federal head. This is what is going on here with him. So now, to say, whenever it's going on with him, so goes the federal head, so goes you. As goes the federal head, so goes you. And this is what Christ is like in verse 9. Since Christ was, was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. That's, it's over for him. Death no longer has mastery over him. He's conquered death. So the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So all of that's true of him, our federal head. So what about us? Verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's who we are. That's the truth about us. And when it says count yourself, consider yourself 
dead to sin. And when it says to sin, it means refer, it refers to the sin nature where you <clears throat> it once held sway over you, where death, <clears throat> unrighteousness, the sin nature all ruled over you. Well, count yourself dead to that because that is no longer who you are. You have opportunities now. You are alive. And this could be illustrated in chapter 7 where he says, Now, you all know the law, how a woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive, but if, her, if, if the husband dies, she is released from the law. Right? These are rules, internal principles within God. He has figured out a way to free us from the state in which we were and then to unite us to Christ to fulfill the eternal purpose of God. This is how he did it. Not just the fact that he did it, but how he did it. We could talk about why he did it. We could talk about how he did it, when it happened. We, we know all of this. We know all the details. So verse 11 is count yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And there's more in Romans that we could glean. And we covered a lot of this when we did go through Romans. So we're going to move on to point number two on our notes, which we already covered one. <clears throat> Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone the new is here. So this is 2 Corinthians 5.17. And we covered that in detail when we covered the Corinthians series. And this, to me, is the most outstanding verse that we can find in the Bible. That is relative to our experience. If anyone is in Christ... We are a new creation. The new creation has come. The old things are gone. They have lost their power. They no longer have power. We just read why and how it happened in Romans. But this is the statement of fact. New things are now a part of our experience. Right? This is, whether we know it or not, this is true of us. Now, it's just now we have to wrap our minds around this. It already happened. Now we have to understand the reality of it. And this this is important. This one verse is a game changer. Right? Don't look at it just as, oh yeah, well if you think you need to think a different way because then if we think we'll be what well, we already are. And what God is telling us in this verse is it has already happened. If if it's true if anybody is in Christ, and that be all of us on this call who are saved, we are in Christ. We are in a new federal head. We have left Adam in his fallen nature. We are no, that is not, not a part of our experience anymore. And we have to see ourselves as in Christ. And when did, when did God choose us for this from before the foundation of the world, before time began, before creation itself, he chose you to be in Christ. So that's how the plan of God unfolds to us and we understand what it means to be a new creation in Christ. And, and how does this work? With, with our phrase, because I live, you also will live. The fact that we're in Christ, Christ is a new federal head. He's not just, uh, you know, some designation that we can fill in the blanks what it means to be in Christ. There's a lot of talk about our identity in Christ. If you don't know your identity in Christ and all this stuff, right? But then they don't tell you what your identity is. They don't give you the detail about how it all works and what it means, you can't establish identity until you go through the rudimentary things of what it means to be in Christ. How is that distinguished from what your purpose in life is in Adam? We need to make those distinctions. So because I live, you will also live. But how is that? Because we're in Christ, we're a new creation, and that is the very basis for our life. 
is the fact that we don't have, we're not in Adam who's dead and all those things of his nature are passed down to us. We're in Christ who is alive and continuing to rule over everything for the church, be the head of the body. There is a dynamic relationship between Christ who is living and his body, the church. We're going to talk about what that is as we go forward. Point three. They are not of the, of the world, even as I am not of it. This is John 17. I'm going to turn there just so that we could, even though I quoted the, the verse. So John 17 and verse 16 is our text here. They, he's talking about the disciples, are not of the world, even as I am not of it. So notice that relationship. He's talking about after Pentecost and the relationship, because at this point, the disciples, even though they're saved, they're still in Adam. He's talking about after right, the Pentecost. He's, he's identifying and defining what their relationship to him would be. They are not of this world even as I am not of it. I mean, imagine, when we talk about who Christ is, uh, the, the best way to talk about it is go to 1 Corinthians 15, where it talks about the elementary uh, teaching about the bodies and who Adam was and who we are as those who derive from him. And then we have Christ who's introduced. And he's not just a man, but he's the Lord of heaven. And then the, the people who are after him will bear the properties of him. I mean, that is unique for us. That takes us out of the world. Christ was born in this world, right? It says, uh, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, right? We talked about the fact that Christ is used as a conduit for us to enter into the plan of the Father, right? To be the sons of uh, that the Father is bringing into glory. Christ is the very one who through him all of this is made possible, right? As we are conformed into his image, right? And all of that. And when we think about the person of Christ, it is not his humanity that we identify with. Yes, it is. I, I would say, yes, it is his humanity, but it is not, his humanity is not the emphasis. It's his divinity. So because it, it mentions the fact that Christ, that Ad, the first man was from the, the let me just turn to it because people are probably saying, what is he talking about? I'm talking about 1 Corinthians 15. And if we look at verses 40, uh, 40 we could start anywhere, 40, 45. So it is written, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, so it is written, the first man became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit, totally defining what both brought to the table, right? Adam, we're talking about Adam, the original man, and Christ, who is the new creation of God. So he says in 46, the spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. Well, we can see how that, un that understanding of that works, because Adam was the first man that was created. But notice, it is not referring to the second man. He's referring to that which is spiritual. So it is not about the fact that we just have new humanity. Right? We, we just got a new suit of humanity when Christ came along. Oh, it is the introduction that we have to something else. And here, it, it continues. Verse 47. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man doesn't say he's from the dust of the earth. Where is he from? Heaven. It's of heaven. The second man is of heaven. So we're, we're talking about we're heavenly beings. It's, we're not just making this stuff up. We're saying that we follow after the second man. Now, the second man has two natures. He's human and he's 
divine. Right? He has two natures. When we think about that, we can say we identify with him in both, but the emphasis is about his divine nature. Because look, look at what it's emphasizing. Oh, and then it continues, verse 48, as was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. He's, but he's not talking about us. You could Somebody would make the point that we're of the earth. But watch, as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. That's told, it takes us out. Now, when we see that one verse in John 17, 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. It puts it in more of a context. And what about 49 in 1 Corinthians 15, 49? It says, and just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, and so we have, haven't we? All of us were dead in our transgressions and sins. We looked like Adam, the man who was of the earth, earthly. So, and just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. The heavenly man, the God-man. That's the image that we will bear when we receive our resurrection bodies. When, when what, the work that God has done in us will be complete. When we receive the, the full adoption of sons to wit, the redemption of our bodies, says Romans 8, 23 and 24. So this is, this is what we need to really start thinking about, what God has done with us, how we are not earthly. Right? None of those things apply to us. We, we talked about some of that in our uh, question and answer session today. And this is how we ought to see ourselves. Right? This is, we are not of this world. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are going on down here. So that was the point three in our outline here. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. And then when it says, even as, that means in the same way as, just as, Christ is not of it, we are not of it. How can we have such close identification with him? Because of the work that uh, was done by those ministries of the Spirit. Key? baptism of the spirit here we are identified with christ what what where how are we identified and it is death burial and resurrection that is so true to the principles of how god operates legally in his mind that we are identified with the person of christ we are we could say of ourselves and and be absolutely true with the reality that god has that we are not of this world. This is not our home. We don't belong down here. But we are here for a purpose, aren't we? Point four. The Father's eternal purpose revealed. So let's look at um, Ephesians. Go to Ephesians. Three. And we'll look at six through 11. We, I know we covered a lot of this already, so we're reaching back because we're looking at the phrase, because I live, you also will live. So, verse 6, the mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So this mystery, remember, does not it didn't it didn't happen to people in other generations, right? It was not made known, right? As it is now re been revealed by the Spirit. And how did the Spirit? Why is He the one who reveals it? Well, He's this is Pentecost we're talking about. When the Spirit comes, who is He? The Spirit of Truth. All of this rings back to those familiar understandings that we have already covered. So, uh, 
in verse 7 now. I became a servant of this gospel. So when it says this gospel, notice the uniqueness in the way he is using the word gospel. Because it's good news that God did this whole mystery thing, right? That he was able to unveil it. That's what he's saying. Surely, verse 2, you have heard about the administration of God's grace, which was given to me for you. That is the mystery, Right? It's good news. Right? This is like something that God been He's been waiting to reveal for since before creation of all things. But now he's at a point where he can reveal it. So it, it, he's coining this whole thing to say it's the gospel. And Paul is saying, I became a servant, a slave of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. He's not talking about his his salvation. That's not the point of saying he's the servant of this gospel. Even though Paul is the first, yeah, he's the servant of the gospel, meaning to get people saved, but he, he that's not the context. The context is about the mystery. That's what he's saying. So, He's getting ready to unload on us. So I just want us to be on the same page as he is, as he as what he's thinking. So he says uh, in verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel to give God's grace given me through the working of his power, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. This grace was given me. What grace? God has empowered Paul in this position in order for him to preach to the Gentiles the boundless, unsearchable riches of Christ. That is Paul's objective here. That's his job right there in verse 8. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. And this is directly a part of the church age. And Paul understands it. And not only does he understand his role, but he embraces it. He says, "I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, with everything in me, I'm going to fulfill the calling that I received." So, verse eight is important because he he is talking about his role. But then in verse nine, he says, "And to make plain to everyone." See, it's not just Gentiles Paul encounters; he will. Preach this message to everyone. Now, of course, can you imagine when you think about these verses, think about the reality of what's going on now. Think about how dumbed down the message of the church and the mystery and all this stuff is in the airwaves of the church. How many people are talking about this stuff? I mean, if this is Paul, the, every motivating fiber in his being and his spirit, the spiritual energy of the Father and the Holy Spirit and Christ in him, it is for him to make this known. And yet, it is not what you hear when you tune in to the Christian churches of today. Many of them are gone by the wayside and teaching things that are convenient for them in this world, popular. But I don't see this being taught. I don't see this being developed in the way that it should be. So here, verse 9, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. That means, the administration of this mystery means how it is being executed, how God the Father is executing the mystery now that it is revealed. How he's running things from heaven on the earth, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. This is, if we if these verses don't resonate with you, then the calling that we have received you are certainly far from it because this is the calling that all these are our marching orders 
this is when we think about who we are in Christ and what are we doing down here. If you don't have these verses in, in mind, then something's wrong because this is Paul telling you directly how it all works together. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So our struggle is not with flesh and blood, it's with principalities, it's with powers. And I like when you go to Ephesians 2. Now just watch this. I know we're, we're in Ephesians 3. I get that. But and go back to 2 for a second. And he says, look how many times he says this. Watch. So if you start at verse 5, he says that he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Notice the identification and the location of our head who is in the heavenly realms right now. Christ. He seated us with him. Alive with him. right, And, and raised us up with Christ. Seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Just understand the identification. All of that happened through the, the reality of the baptism of the Spirit and all those other ministries that we're discussing uh, right now because I live... Back to 3. Back to Ephesians 3 now. Hopefully you're not confused by my divergence here. My digressing here. So, verse 10, his intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of the God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That's a mouthful. I'm not going to cover it a whole, all the extent of this. But it's the Father's, it's according, verse 11, to the eternal purpose. His, and when he says his, the Father's eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. We, it doesn't get any better than this. And I talk about, if this doesn't move you, then you shall not be moved. <laughs> you literally don't get it. Because these verses are, I mean, and then obviously he goes on further. And wow, the rest of Ephesians 3 is probably the deepest in the Bible, period. You might say that's my opinion. That's You might like some psalm or something else, but I'm saying... In my mind, these are the deepest verses in the Bible. And it talks about the manifold wisdom of God being known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So you got all three categories of rational beings. You got the Gentiles, everyone else in verse 9. You got the church being the, the medium to even angelic creatures. And angelic creatures have the responsibility. They were created to minister to us, those of us in the church age. Angels were created. That's their purpose for that reason. They need to know how to function in their role as well. So in this, we're going back to our notes where it's we're at point four, the Father's eternal purpose revealed. And when it talks about because I live, you will all you also will live. That's because of this design that the Father had. This is what he wanted. This is why we're talking about this, right? This is this verse led us to this point. Point number five. What God had, did here was unbelievable. It's only seen through the spirit of truth. It is not relative to human experience. And I want to look at first. Corinthians 2 9 and then 11 through 13. 1 Corinthians 2, the 9 verse we have quoted a million times. If you don't know this verse by heart, something's wrong. I will read it. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, 
the things God has prepared for those who love him. What is he preparing you for? Unbelievable things. Well, it's unbelievable because they don't relate to our human experience. How can we as human beings even understand such things? We can't. So the verses precede, uh, the next verses that follow will help us understand how that works. It is through God the Holy Spirit that these things are revealed to us. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things, the depths of God. Wow. So if God has basics, right, intermediate things and deep things, we're talking about here the deep things of God. Remember, this is not only how God is going to save man and all that. This is beyond that. These are the depths of God, not just the depths of man. These are the depths of God himself. The thinking is, if we could categorize the thinking of God here, this thinking is the deep things of God. That means the things that God hid and destined, right? The, the mystery, all those things are the very core of what God is all about. If you don't get the core, I mean, nobody gets this but us because this is whom, to whom it pertains. We are the recipients of these things. God didn't just say, hey, I'm going to give this, I'm going to show you my, all. He didn't show anybody. He hid them in himself until now. So 11 says, for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them. This is how, this is the analogy that he gives. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Just like I can't know anything that is, when we think about this, let's, let's develop this just for a second. Who can know what another person's thinking? Nobody. The only way somebody can know what that person's thinking is if that person themselves reveal it. That's it. Otherwise, you can't know. It's, it, it's impossible for you to know the thoughts of other. We don't have that ability. Now, I know movies and magicians and all kinds of, they play on how that works and they try to say, oh, so-and-so, he can tell you what you're thinking. None of that is true. They're all tricks. So the only, and the Bible is clear about this. No one can know. No one knows the thoughts of, of another person. But now, he uses that analogy to talk about verse 11. Um, he's, so, and where it's 11 and 12, where he says, For who knows a person's thoughts affect their own spirit within them? In the same way, just, just like that, no one knows the thoughts of God except except the Spirit of God. No one knows the thoughts of God. And what thoughts are we talking about? We're talking about those deep things that were hidden in God. God considers the deep stuff. No one knows those thoughts except the Spirit of God. When did the Spirit of God reveal these things? He began to do it at Pentecost. And that's how important this stuff is that we're talking about. And go on. Verse 12, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. So it's not just good enough to know that we have been given these things. We have to understand them. That's where we are. We, it is not just given to us to tell us, hey, this, and then we'd just be impressed with the big words. It is enough for us to understand it, what he has freely given to us. It doesn't cost you anything but humility, just like salvation costs you humility. It doesn't cost you anything else, not good works, not behavior modification, not walking down an aisle, none of those things. This only requires that you bring yourself that's it, that you understand. And then verse uh, 13, this is what we speak. 
not in words taught us by human wisdom. So it's, what we're talking about is just like what he said earlier. Not eye is not seen, ear is not heard, neither is that entered into the heart of man. But words taught us by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities, spirit taught words. So this is this is the reality of what we're talking. It's unbelievable, right? You can't see. There's no other way to understand it. Unless you have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Truth, there's no way to it, for it to be revealed to you. And even if it is revealed, if you don't accept what the Spirit does, you cannot have it. These things, it is not. These things are not relative to human experience. You can't figure it out on your own. A real smart person can't figure it out, even if he's real smart. He can't come to this because it's outside the realm of human understanding. The only way we, as human beings, which are not, we talked about the reason why we have it because we're in Christ now. And we are not of this world. And we are from the Lord. And we will bear the properties of the Lord of heaven now. The Holy Spirit becomes our competence. right? He, he becomes our intelligence and our wisdom that we can understand. It's the only way we can understand such things. So we have to get these things, these key features out in the world. The world has to know that God is in us and this is the expression or the witness of God in the world. But God goes beyond that, right? The human history is what he was after to bring many sons into glory. That's that all. It's the reason why he created human history is because he wanted to bring many sons into glory. God has a purpose for the church beyond human history. We'll get to that at another time. Point F. Our lives merged with Christ and Christ is merged with the Father. Right? And this is the connected analogy. And when I think about it, 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 it's difficult, but then we can make a game out of it. You ever hear the foot bones connected to the ankle bone, the ankle bones connected to the thigh bone, the leg bone, and the leg bones, and so forth. You, all of you have heard that. That's how it is. That's how God connected us all together. Right? So we... We are connected to the pastor. The pastor is connected to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is connected to Christ. Christ is connected to the Father. The Father is connected to his plan. All of that goes together. That's when We can go up. We can come down. It doesn't matter. It all works the same. And that's how our lives are merged. If we look at uh, John... When 17, where it said this, uh, so it, where it said in 16 that they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. And it identified those disciples. But in verse 20, it says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. What about them? That they may be one father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So this whole part of it, it defines what quality of one. All of this we'll talk about next week when we get to the dynamics of it. Uh, on that day, you will know that I am in the Father, you are in me, I am in you. We'll talk about that more. That is our verse next week. But just know that our lives are merged for a reason. Because I live, this is the life that we are brought into. He just explained it, right? I will be in them, and you will be in us. You know, all of that is the life now that belongs to those who are in Christ. If anybody is in Christ, this is the reality for you. We are merged in the life of Christ. And then, because we are merged in the life of Christ, we, we share everything he is and has. We even share his relationship to the Father. So, 
the Spirit, the Father, all that's connected. Point G, this is <clears throat> back to Ephesians again for point G. Ephesians chapter 5. Just one of the things I wanted to relate here when it comes to verse 33, 32 rather. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church, Ephesians 5, 32, and context. So 32 spills the beans, right? If you weren't already paying attention, when it talks about husbands and wives, he constantly was relating it to Christ and the church. And he talked about how the church, he's going to present her to himself. This is in 27, as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for the body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. <laughs> He's not even talking about husbands and wives. He's using the husband and wife relationship to help you understand features of the relationship that we have with Christ. So for this reason, a man, and he brings in this verse, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. One flesh, meaning all that he is, we are. When I say all, I mean all that he is, we are. We are one flesh. This, this is a profound mystery, a great mystery. When I'm talking about Christ and the church. We're going to continue next week. Hopefully, uh, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. Hopefully, that verse is understood a little bit better as we continue our march in John chapter 14. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Father, for this uh, revelation that was given to the church, the understanding of who we are in Christ and profound uh, ramifications and implications of all of that. And we'll be discussing this wisdom that was destined for our glory before time began for a long time. This is profound. This is one of the greatest things we can think of ever happening in history is what you did at Pentecost. So we thank we're thankful for all that has happened and the fact that you chose us. We, we can't even understand why we are even here, but the fact is that you chose us to be in him before the creation of the world. So we have nothing but gratitude and appreciation for not only your plan, but all that you've, your choices, everything. We, we are just so pleased when we think about our stead here in the world. So we, we pray for what's happening for us on the ground. Give us wisdom as we negotiate the difficulties and trouble that are here. We pray for the church, not only word is truth, but the church universal, wherever church is in the world. And we're praying because we all have the same purpose in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.